and it's nice to see some of you here still. Um, today it's going to be a little bit of a different lecture because it won't be quite our usual format. What I'm going to do today is just give you a quick picture, like a big picture of where we're going with the remaining classes left in the course. So that will be a sort of a short segment. And then after that, I'm actually going to take up the midterm. So I'm going to review the midterm. And um, since the, mid the makeup happened yesterday, you'll have a chance to see, if you remember what your answers are, where you went wrong. And please remember, you can also, if you wish to see your exam paper itself, uh, you can make an appointment with me to come see this. So just email me, and we'll make uh, a time where you can come and see this. All right. Okay, so there we go. So last time we had a pretty material-heavy, well, I think we always have material-heavy lectures, because there's just so much material to do for this course covering all areas of science. But today we'll take a little break on the material heaviness. And when we pick up next week on Wednesday, we'll review the minerals, uh, metals, and gemstones lecture. But for today, we're going to look again at the big picture, which is really the physics of light, which is essentially this entire course that in that light is color. Color is light. You can't have one without the other. So we're going to see where we're going in the remaining lectures. There's not too many left. There's about five, maybe. Um, and we're going to look at in more detail. We've already done behaviors of light. We've already defined light and talked about this wave particle nature of light. But we're going to talk about this a little bit more today and just go over some of those definitions uh, and how we're going to use them in the rest of the course. And at that point, I will take a little break, and then we'll review the midterm. So I think today, instead of doing our 15, 20-minute break, maybe I'll do a five-minute break or so between um, this and the midterm. Okay. All right, so let's go ahead and get started. Light and color, we know, are intricately woven together. And so far in this course, we've said that this course is basically a combination of physics, physiology, when we talked about the eye, and also chemistry. So we're going to go back to the very first part of the course that we did with the physics of light. And remembering that light can be thought of both as a wave and, of a and as a particle. In terms of the utility of this, of thinking it of it as one or the other, it turns out you can think of it in terms of scales. So basically, on big scales, you can think of light as a wave. And then for the smaller microscopic scales, you can think of light as a particle. So this is how it sort of relates to our everyday life. Often photons are considered thought of as particles. We talk about them as particles. They're also waves. But this is in the very small, and this is in the very large. So what about this is important? Well, obviously, thinking as one or the other, we have important behaviors that result from both of these. So in terms of thinking of light as a wave, you have ways of interacting with matter. 
A wave can interact with matter in many ways. One of them is bouncing off matter. And a number of phenomena come from this, such as scattering, reflection, iridescence, and diffraction. We're going to talk about part one of our light big picture today, and part one will be how light bounces off matter and what the related behaviors are with that. Next time we'll talk about how light travels actually into matter and affects matter itself. So that'll be part two. And a number of phenomena associated with this are absorption, transmission, dispersion, refraction, and also diffraction. So you see diffraction is related with both, and diffraction is really the bending of light. That's thinking about light as a wave. What about thinking about it as a particle? Same kind of thing. We have ways of interacting with matter, and we have absorption of light and emission of light. So it's very simple. If you think about exchange of photons, electrons leaping up and down levels, when an electron leaps down a level, it releases a photon of light. That's emission. When it leaps up a level, it must have absorbed a photon in order to have the energy to get up that additional level. So this is all stuff we know so far. In terms of applications in real life, it's important to think of light sometimes in these two different ways because it leads to different types of applications, different types of theoretical concepts. And just to give you an example of some of that, thinking of light in the very big realm, we can think of it as transmitting signals, as transmitting information, and we use this in fiber optics. So fiber optics are basically wires that transmit light, and you will have seen them, usually you see them most commonly as decorative ornaments right now, in terms of you see those lamps that look like a sort of a bouquet and have pinpoints of light at the end of it. Aside from being attractive in this way, fiber optics are extremely important to communication. Um, they are used as fiber optic cable and they will be instrumental in making computers a lot faster and having our processing power increase many times. So fiber optics is one of these applications. Atmospheric scattering. We're going to get into this in detail next time. So that includes why the sky is blue, why clouds are white, and why we see rainbows. And it's an interesting phenomena that you can understand fully by thinking of light as a wave. There's also things like soap bubbles, which we'll get into next week. That's sort of a thin film. So often on soap bubbles, you'll see this sort of membranous area that has all these rainbow swirling colors in them. And this is again an effect of light as a wave moving through a specific medium. In terms of uh, some of these other things we've talked about as well, morpho butterflies. That beautiful blue butterfly wing of the morpho butterfly is not a result of a blue pigment. It's a result of the scattering of light by structural uh, sort of, not deformities, but structural inconsistencies 
in the morpho butterfly's wing. Same thing with a lot of blue feathers in nature, and the same thing with cat's eyes. Scattering the light, when you see cat's eyes sort of glowing in the dark or glowing under certain conditions, they have um, a membrane that scatters light in different ways, so it looks like it's actually emitting light. Now thinking of light as this particle nature, as a photon, applications of that are things that we had talked about, lots of things we had talked about in the midterm and in the first assignment. So black body radiation, basically the temperature of radiation emitted by an object when it's heated or by a perfect theoretical black body object that absorbs all radiation incident upon it and re-radiates it. Then, of course, we have our, our favorite sort of three basic types of spectra, which are given by Kirchhoff's laws, the emission spectra, the absorption spectra, and the continuous spectra. So the next couple lectures, the remaining lectures we have in the course, we're going to cover these topics, atmospheric scattering, rainbows, soap bubbles, and since we've already covered this, we're going to move on to looking at light as photons and covering phenomena in Earth's atmosphere like aurora, the aurora borealis. And also, if we have time, which I think we will, because we're doing pretty well in terms of covering the material, we'll get into a little supplement on uh, astronomy and how spectroscopy and colors are used in astronomy, and also how the light that we see from very distant objects in the universe tells us all about its physical structure and about the universe itself. All right, so let's get into part one of what we're going to discuss today, which is light as a wave. So light as a wave of electromagnetic radiation is again a macroscopic way of thinking of light, and it's more useful to describe it in the very big, very large scheme of things as a wave. As we saw in that previous slide, there are a lot of different sorts of interactions. And we can think of light as a wave interacting with regular matter in two major ways. And then one of them, as I've said before, one of them is simply bouncing off the matter. The other one is going into the matter. And these are quite different. And we will see why. So light bouncing off matter gives us scattering, reflection, diffraction, and iridescence. We are going to talk about iridescence next week. It's a slightly more complicated topic. Traveling into matter, this will be part one over here, and this will be part two. Traveling into matter gives us the phenomena of absorption, transmission, dispersion, refraction, and diffraction. Okay, so let's take a look in this area to see in a little more detail what each of these things are. When light bounces off matter, it can basically do only a couple things, really. So a wave, imagine an incoming wave hitting this table. The wave is going to be sort of bounced off or bent or refracted in a certain direction. So light can bounce off 
a regular object and how it bounces that object off of that object depends on basically a number of things, but one of them is also the medium that we're talking about. So remember when we saw Newton's experiment. He put light through a prism. It was a glass prism. So if you think about air, and you think about this glass prism, the atomic structure of both of these things are different. You can think of it as a thickness. Moving through air is sort of less viscosity, less density. Moving through a prism, though, the molecules, it's a solid. The atoms and molecules are packed more densely together. And the effect that this has can actually be changing the speed of the light. So if, think about if you are walking on a nice paved road, and then you start walking on a very, very muddy, sort of quick sandy road, you're probably going to slow down a little bit. And the same thing happens with light when it goes through different media. So let's talk about, before we get into all of the properties of light bouncing off different media, let's just talk about the straight bouncing off phenomenon. So when something is incoming and bouncing off matter, basically we have the straight path of the light ray. Remember it's a wave, but it's traveling in a straight, straight path. It deviates by a certain angle and it bounces right back. So we often talk about a couple of terms interchangeably, and I know it gets confusing. And that's why I want to sort of describe in detail what these terms are. Because you may ask, what's the difference between dispersion, refraction, reflection, all of these terms that we've been using? And there are minor differences, but a lot of the time they're used interchangeably. The important point for all of this is they all describe, all of these terms describe how light bounces off matter. So there are two ways which we're going to talk about today, and we're going to pick this up again next lecture. But two ways the light will bounce off of matter is through reflection, which is a common one that we know we have very uh, everyday experience with in terms of things like mirrors. Light comes in sort of in a straight direction, hits the surface, and is reflected back at a certain angle. There is a rule for that when you have reflection in a specular sense, which means a clear image is formed or very, very shiny. Basically, if a light wave comes into a surface, the angle of incidence, so the angle that the light wave hits the surface of, is equal to the angle of reflection. So the going in is equal to the angle going out. All of this is described by laws of reflection. You might have seen this. Um, I believe it's probably in the grade 9 or 10 curriculum. You do a little bit of elementary optics in physics, where you have the mirrors and you draw the image, you draw the light rays coming in, the focal point, is, is it behind the mirror, in front of the mirror, and all of these different things. We won't get into that too much. Um, just know that a reflection is happening and the light ray is coming in at an angle, going out at an angle. 
The other term that we get confused a lot of the time with reflection is scattering. It's kind of not great that we get it confused with reflection because it's, it's slightly, it's, it is a different thing. What's happening is the light wave returns to its original medium. And when I say returns to the original medium, I mean if a light wave is coming, hitting the table, it returns to air. So it returns to the original medium, but because of inconsistencies in that surface, let's say the table was slightly jagged at the microscopic level, or even at a level bigger than that, the light will be scattered differently in different directions. And that is a function of the wavelength of the light. So let's see. Basically, it's traveling in a straight trajectory. And instead of coming in and going out, you get this straight trajectory and scattering in a number, wide number of angles, basically in a large angular range. Let's just talk about reflection a little bit. So you can think very simply uh, of reflection as the change in the direction of the wave's motion as a result of hitting some medium interface. So a table, an object, even a difference in density like air to prism, such that the wave travels back into its original medium along this straight trajectory as given by our law of reflection. That law of reflection is called Snell's law. It has a complicated, not complicated actually, it has a formula, but we've done enough, I think, of formula in the first part of the course, so I'm not going to get into the details of Snell's law or ask you to calculate any of those types of angles. Just remember, reflection coming in at a straight angle, going out at a different angle. So all of these can, uh, waves, basically, all waves can experience reflection. That doesn't just talk about electromagnetic waves. It talks about waves in the ocean, waves in the air, which are gravity waves, any kind of wave you can really think of. So waves of light, sound waves, and water waves experience reflection. If you're wondering how this happens in water waves, think about a motorboat. A motorboat is rapidly moving across a lake. It has a wake behind it. These wakes are kind of like ripples, and they spread out in space on the lake's surface. Now, what happens is that creates kind of a medium change or a different boundary. So let's say your motorboat, there's a direction of wind, the wind is going that way, waves are kind of like already existing, going this way. You have your boat and it creates this boundary and the waves reflect off of that boundary and change their trajectory. And you can actually see this when you see a, a very fast boat leaving a wake. Sound waves you know can experience reflection because if you've ever been in a, often in, a, in really, really old homes, sometimes you'll hear almost inside 
noises that are outside. So that's just sound waves bouncing around, being reflected. Or if you go to sort of a noisy pub, sometimes you'll be hear, able to hear people's conversation in the corner. It's the sound waves being reflected and redirected into your ear. So there's a couple types of reflection, but for our purposes, what we want to talk about are, is actually the main type of reflection that we see all the time. There'll be two that we're going to talk about. We'll talk about specular and diffuse refraction. Sorry, reflection. Before we start with specular, if anybody's into computer graphics, you will have seen, um, if you're trying to render a 3D picture, you often see, so they'll show you lighting samples, and they usually give you a lighting sample on a sphere. And they have specular highlights and diffuse highlights. So if you were to shine a light, think of a mirror sphere. If you were to shine a light directly on a sphere, the more specular or sharp the reflection is, sort of the more distinct of a light circle we get if the light source is here. So a specular reflection is a straight going in and coming out of the lines, and it's off a uniform reflecting surface. So it comes in at one angle, goes out at another, with the result that what is reflected to you, since all the light coming in is essentially reflected out in one direction, is very, very sharp. It's a sharp image. This is actually what we see in mirrors, and this is what we think of commonly and what we refer to commonly as just reflection. So this is illustrating uh, some of the laws of reflection, that angle that I was talking about. So here it's shown to you, and it's, this is the Greek symbol theta. Theta just refers to that particular angle. So it has theta i equals theta r. So the angle of incidence, i, is equal to the angle of reflection, r. So here's our table. If we have an incident light ray coming into the table, remember, it was a long time ago, but try and remember back to that first assignment. And I had talked about a surface normal. It's probably in our first or second or third lecture. So a surface normal is simply, if you have a surface, it is a line drawn at 90 degrees to the surface. So this is the plane of the surface. The surface normal will be like this. So we characterize that angle of how light reflects by drawing a surface normal to whatever surface it's reflecting off of. So the angle from the normal to the light ray is your incident angle. And then the angle from the normal to the reflected light ray is your angle of reflectance. There's a nice um, interactive reflection of light tutorial here that will give you a better sense physically of how all of this works. So I encourage you to check that out at some point. But this is all that's happening in a mirror. So let's talk a little bit more about specular reflection before we move into diffuse reflection, which is essentially the opposite of that. Specular, think S, specular, sharp. It's 
Specular reflection always gives you a sharp image back. It's because the light rays are moving in one specific direction. So the reflection is a sharp image of the object reflected back to the viewer. And how sharp and how clear that reflection is depends on the material doing the reflecting. That's pretty obvious, right? Think of sometimes in a metal surface or in a frame or a lighter or something, you might catch it, see a reflection. It's not entirely clear. But take a mirror, for instance, and that reflection becomes crystal clear. That is a function of the material doing the reflection. And mirrors have been learned to be crafted over hundreds of years. The first best sort of good mirrors happened in about the 1400s. And humans have been refining mirror making techniques ever since. But one of the things you'll see when if you've ever seen perhaps on TV on some of those how those things made shows, you'll see a mirror sort of circulating and being smooth and smooth and smooth. It's basically because they want to get a uniformity of the surface at a very microscopic level so that all the light that comes into it is reflected in one specific direction as opposed to scattered all over the place. And that gives you that sharp image. So here's an example of, of one of the type of standard type of optics diagrams. This line here is a flat mirror. And if you have a butterfly, it's the same thing happening as in the previous diagram. Light rays that are being sort of shone onto the butterfly reach the mirror, and they're reflected back at a certain angle to our eyes. Because the human eye perceives, as we've seen, perceives things differently, uh, the eye thinks that the butterfly is actually inside the mirror, behind the mirror. And that's what gives us our nice sort of depth perception when we look at mirrors. We have a three-dimensional sense of what's going on in mirrors. That's a function of where the human eye believes the focus of all those light rays are. So you can see again this material dependence. If you've ever looked at houses or a landscape reflected in a lake, it depends on a couple of things. How calm the lake is, for one. Sort of the ambient wind. It's a number of things. So wind, atmosphere, and the calmness. It also depends on how the light is coming in. So sometimes if the light is too high in the sky, you won't see any reflection at all. You'll just see the light, the sun, reflected back to you. But these two pictures show you exactly how you get these really sharp images reflected by a specific medium, in this case water. And that sharpness depends on the conditions within the medium. So unsurprisingly, there is, in terms of surfaces, you can characterize 
their reflectivity. Some things are better reflectors, some things are worse reflectors. And this is how we learn to coat glass with aluminum, which is a very good reflector, aluminum powder, basically. So that brings us then to scattering. So remember reflection, one direction in, one, reflection, one direction out. Scattering is opposite of that. One direction in, many directions out. It's basically the bouncing of light waves off a source or a medium, but those light waves are bouncing off at different angles based on the inconsistencies in the medium. So one thing is, if you've ever noticed, this is a pretty smooth wall right here, but some ceilings and some walls have kind of mottled effects or spatter effects that instead of having the surface look like this, the surface kind of looks like this. And basically what this does is instead of having a straight light ray coming in like this and bouncing off, because of these little inconsistencies in the surface, the light comes in and just bounces off in many different directions. And this is often, these kinds of surfaces make a room a little less glaring and less, uh, less bright because it diffusely ref re, uh, reflects the light. So it sends it in a soft kind of glow in all areas of the room. Let's go back to our scattering. So what's happening is light waves off non-uniformities in a medium basically reflect in all possible or very random directions. Sometimes they reflect preferentially, and that depends upon those inconsistencies and non-uniformities in the specific medium doing the reflecting. Unlike reflection, we really have no clear or sharp reflected image from scattering. You basically just have, often with scattering you see like a diffuse fog. And scattering is part of the reason the atmosphere is blue, because light is scattered in a preferential direction based on the molecules that it's hitting in the atmosphere. And we'll talk about that again next class, how that happens. So scattering of light occurs in basically two ways. So the first way is you can think of off of big objects, since we're talking about light as a wave on a macroscopic scale. So exactly what I mentioned before, scattering off, say, a smooth wall like this. What's happening is the waves come in. They're scattered in many different directions. And this is therefore called a diffuse or not a sharp reflection. Now with smaller scale objects, and when I say small scale, I don't mean small scale like a phone or just a, an object in nature. I mean really small scale, like molecules, particles, aerosols, particulate matter in the atmosphere. So really small objects also scatter light, which is why you see specific colors sometimes at different times of the day. Think about, in one case, 
in the summer often we get like a lot of sort of ozone pollution closer to the ground. If it's a really, really hot day, ozone pollution, ozone content in the air tends to peak and the parts per million of the ozone becomes greater. But you notice, you see a smog when it's a hot day. And it's a kind of a yellowy smog. This is because of preferential scattering of light off those ozone molecules. Okay. So small scale objects, we're talking about molecules, minuscule bubbles, droplets, crystalline solid defects, tiny little microscopic defects, density fluctuations in fluids, just meaning how thick the fluid is, cells in organisms, and also textile fibers in clothing. So you would have seen the structure of textile fibers when you did your dye essay, but at the molecular level, this would be considered small scale. When we talk about scattering as something that happens off of these small scale objects, this is usually referred to as scattering in general. So this is just called scattering. And anytime you hear somebody talk about scattering, it usually means off a, a minuscule object, not a huge one. So just like in reflection, how that material depended, what the material was and the conditions of the material, for instance, the water, if it was still, if it was being blown about by wind, depended on, actually gave us a certain kind of reflection. Material characteristics of what is doing the scattering give us the basic properties of the scattered light. So here is diffuse reflection. And diffuse reflection, it's just to confuse things a little bit more, diffuse reflection is very much like scattering in that it's not sharp and you don't get one ray coming in, one ray going out at a prescribed angle. In diffuse reflection, you get, again, this kind of a rough surface which has the light coming in but reflects it in many different directions. So often, don't get confused because often you'll hear diffuse reflection referred to as a kind of scattering. That's only because instead of with direct reflection with a ray coming in and going out at an angle we can calculate, in diffuse reflection it's going out at a number of different angles. So it's more like scattering. And to show you that, here's a difference basically between what we normally call reflection, which is our specular or shiny reflection. All of the light comes in and goes out at this particular angle, angle of incidence, angle of reflection. And this is the diffuse reflection where the light is kind of scattering in all different directions. So in terms of this microscopic scattering that we refer to as scattering in general. As I just mentioned to you, in terms of things like pollution, haze, mist, fog, a number of different things is basically a phenom phenomenon that results from light scattering off of particles. And the reason that clouds are white and the reason that clouds are blue are again scattering of sunlight 
off specific atmospheric particles, which will scatter wavelengths. Remember, we're talking about light coming in as a wave, hitting a particle. The particle will scatter different wavelengths by different amounts. It's like how we had Newton's prism, the dispersion, which was the breaking of white light into its constituent colors. We have the same thing when you have light coming in, hitting a particle, and being scattered at a certain angle. So blue, for instance, gets scattered at a greater angle. It gets scattered more than red. The shorter wavelengths can get scattered, depending on what's doing the scattering, get scattered more sometimes than the longer or red wavelengths. Now, just this is bringing us to the start of our midterm review. One of the questions that was asked on the midterm was about a, a spectrum of a red t-shirt. And we had talked about reflectance, absorption, and basically continuous spectra before. But just to make that entirely clear, let's look at some examples of each. So when we're talking about reflection, scattering, diffuse reflection. Everything we're talking about, all the light we are characterizing by our spectrum that we draw is reflected light. And consequently, this is called a reflectance spectrum. Most objects don't glow, as you know. I mean, the sun is essentially a furnace, and it produces its own light. However, the chair doesn't, and most things in this room, except for the lights, don't. And basically, all they're doing is when you have an, a light source, they're reflecting that light back to your eye, and that determines how you see them. So how do we characterize that? Well, as you know, we characterize it by drawing a spectrum, which tells us which colors an object is composed of. And when we're talking about regular non-glowing objects, we're, we're always drawing a reflectance spectrum. So basically, we take that amount of light reflected as a percentage, draw it on the x-axis of the visible light spectrum from 400 to 700 nanometers, which we see. So let's take a look at one. So here's a reflectance spectrum of a red t-shirt. This should hopefully look familiar to you. We have along the bottom all the wavelengths of visible light that we see, so a little bit outside of the range, but going from 300 to 800 nanometers. On the y-axis, we have the amount of light reflected as a percentage. So the red t-shirt is just really reflecting that red light at about 700 nanometers, 100% reflecting that red light to our eye. And so it, it is a bright red t-shirt to us. And if it's reflecting red, that means it's absorbing all of the other wavelengths except red. So another way you could draw this spectrum is, instead of looking at what we see, <coughs> you could look at what we don't see. Instead of having a reflectance spectrum, you could draw 
uh, an absorbance spectrum. So note here that reflectance is on the y-axis for an absorption spectrum. That makes sense. It's basically just the opposite. The absorption spectrum shows you all the wavelengths. So basically 100% absorption of all of these wavelengths except red. So there's a key difference. So whenever you look at a spectrum, what you want to look at is the quantity that is graphed on this y-axis. Is it reflectance? Is it absorption? Or is it intensity? Let's compare them side by side. So basically here you can very clearly see they're just entirely opposites. The reflectance and the absorption spectrum tell you both. So we'll talk about this in relation to the question on the midterm in just a second. Next week we'll pick up, I didn't quite finish part one in terms of ways in which light bounce off of objects. There's a couple more phenomena that I'd like to discuss quickly with you next week. But next week mainly we'll be doing on Wednesday traveling into matter and light behaviors traveling into matter. That will lead us later on in the coming week, probably on Friday. Next Friday we'll do iridescence. And then after that, we'll talk a little bit more about light behaviors and then do our astronomy supplement. So that's where we're going with everything. Okay, so I think I'll give you a couple minutes break, maybe if you need to run to the washroom, and then we'll get started with the uh, midterm review. So it's 9.19 if you want to be back on 9.25. So let's get started with our midterm review. Um, if you have any questions at any time, please stop me. Call out, put up your hand. Uh, if something's not clear, just ask. So I'm going to go to a document of the midterm here. Okay. So here's this familiar page. Um, in terms of the exam, some of you have asked questions about what's on the final exam. The final exam is cumulative, meaning that it will cover the entire course. However, I will be concentrating on lectures, the lectures that were not covered for the midterm. So that's a lecture 11 to the last lecture. And um, I think the questions will be pretty similar to the midterm questions. I'm going to try and make it a little bit more straightforward. I did think the midterm was straightforward, but I know that the results were probably not as good as everybody had hoped. So for that reason, I'm going to try and make it a little bit, um, a little bit more straightforward. But let's go take a look at, at what you did, how you did in your midterm. So. I'll just go quickly, unless there's some question that people want to jump to immediately, 
I'm just going to go through them um, one by one and just give you a quick reason as to why the answers are. Again, please stop me, put up your hand if you have questions. Okay. So I'm not going to do this as well as a reef session because that's going to take us all day if we do that. So the first set of questions. Short, middle, and long wavelength sensitive something are the color receivers for the eye. So typically, we are talking about color, we're talking about C, cones. Cones are the color receivers for the eyes. Yes? Sure. Uh, let me see if I can... Is that better? Okay. All right, so that's number one. The painter's primaries. So remember painter's primaries, we talked about that color wheel. We're talking about it and in the color wheel. So when we're talking about painter's primaries, those are different than the primaries we usually talk about as red, green, and blue. Those were the red, yellow, and blue that you learn sort of early on in, um, in preschool, basically. So the painter's primaries are A, red, yellow, and blue. The additive primaries, okay, and I apologize for this here. I realize afterward that I put as in Itten's color wheel, and that could be misleading. So I do apologize for that. Um, I didn't mean for you to recite the color wheel, but there are certain ways that Itten's colors combine additively. Uh, I should have crossed that out, basically. But I, all I meant was the additive primaries, the ones that we talked about in class. And those would be the red, green, and the blue. So I am not adjusting the marks right now, but I will adjust your final exam marks if you did poorly on the midterm and you did well on the final exam. So we'll, we'll just make that a little bit better that way. Okay, four. A something is used to help dyes adhere to a material, for instance, cotton, better. Adhering to a material. Adhering is a mordant. D. So the mordant makes a dye stick to the fabric, whereas these other options, leucophore is, is a, well, there is no leucophore, but leuco, leuco is for indigo. Chromophore is color, binder is what you mix with paint, and antioxidant has nothing to do with our purposes in this, in this question. A something color is one in which there is no clear, standout, dominant wavelength. Purple is an example of this. So if that's not immediately clear to you, think about what the spectrum would look like. There's no one peak. There's a series of different peaks. And purple is the example of this. Well, that would be non-spectral hues. So that's D, non-spectral hues. Purple is a non-spectral hue. It's not, it doesn't have its own peak. It's a combination of many different colors. And if you remember that CIE diagram, 
with the primaries. We had red, green, and blue. It was that kind of a round shape like this. And this line here were a number of purples, and they are called the non-spectral colors. Okay. So which of the following are two key components of any dye? So without getting too specific, two key general components of any dye, this was in your slides, and the answer to this one was E. Oxochrome, which enhances the color, and chromophore, which gives the color in the first place. Okay. So this one was a little bit uh, trickier. It's a diagram showing a hydrogen atom in different states. So you have your nucleus in the center, an electron orbiting in a specific orbital. In which of all of these four scenarios is a photon actually being emitted? So a couple things here you have to think about. What causes a photon to be emitted? Well, basically, that's an electron jumping down a level. It's an electron losing energy and jumping down so that the photon is emitted. Now, in order for that electron to have gotten to that upper level in the first place, it will have absorbed a photon and gained energy. So the process of an electron jumping up is photon absorption. Anything with an arrow upward is a photon being absorbed. D is just the electron orbiting in its natural shell, which is nothing, no change. But the answer for this one <coughs> is C, because what's happening is an excited electron is going down, falling down an energy level and releasing or emitting a photon of a specific color. So that answer is C. An example of a pure covalent bond is something, whereas an example of a polar covalent bond is, okay. So if you have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about in this question, there's one word that you could use as sort of a clue, which is pure. And when you look at the choices of answers, if you see pure, well, what could be sort of more pure than two of the same atom bonding together? So basically, when you say diatomic, it just means two hydrogens together. You know the answer has to be between C and D. Okay, and the answer in that one is C. We talked about diatomic hydrogen in class, which is a pure covalent bond, and water, which is a polar bond. Polar meaning that the molecule has certain polarity or certain charge at different parts. So one end of the molecule is charged differently, either negatively or positively, than the other end. And with water, although you kind of think of water as symmetric, not really having one end or another end, when you have water, you have one hydrogen atom 
and two oxygen atoms. And basically, this end, the bottom, is net negatively charged, and the top is net positively charged. So that's polar. Nine, pH is useful as a measure of all the following except a substance's what? So in this case, <clears throat> I asked you to cross out answer A. Because answer A, it's a little bit tricky. It's actually true. So we, we won't get into that because it's a little beyond the scope of the course. But choosing from B to E, pH measures everything except what? Well, everything except C. Use is an indicator. An indicator is something that's slightly basic or acidic and changes color, but particularly measure of pH will not tell you if it's useful or not as an indicator. It will tell you if it's acidic or if it's alkaline. And in terms of potential hydrogen, that's what pH stands for. So that's by nature what pH measures. So the wavelength of green light is something that of blue light and that of red light. Any, anybody feel like shouting out answers? Okay, we'll just go quickly through it then. So the wavelength of green is longer than blue light and shorter than red light. Green is in the middle. Okay. So it's B. What constitutes color? Is it wavelength and frequency, perception, energy, all of them, or none of them? Well, it's actually all of the above in this case. This is everything we've been talking about. So that one should have been pretty easy. So in 12, some color and some color wavelengths of light are absorbed by the chlorophyll molecule. Well, what color is chlorophyll normally? Like, what color does it allow us to see? Red and or did I hear red and orange? Um, it allows us, remember chlorophyll, it's not the pigment, it's not what you have in fall, it's what you have in the leaves normally. So it's green, it lets us see green. Right? So basically, what does it absorb? It absorbs everything but green, so it absorbs red and blue, D. This one was a little trickier, 13. Which of the following lists EM waves from longest to shortest? Um, but I hope that you might remember that we are talking about radio waves as very, very, very long waves with long wavelengths. So you know the answer has to be one of them that mentions radio waves first. So it has to be A, C, or E. And then let's look at each one, how you would do it. Look at A, radio wave and x-ray. That seems like a big jump. Remember, x-rays are shorter than visible light. So they're higher energy. So it can't be A, because that just seems like too much of a jump right away. Okay, now we have between C and E. So radio wave, microwave, those two are the same. What's different? 
There's one that lists ultraviolet, then x-ray, and there's one that lists x-ray, then ultraviolet. If you remember from class and from looking at the EM spectrum and where the visible spectrum ends at the blue, just after that we have ultraviolet. And then higher energy we have x-rays. So the answer for that one is C. The additive complement of orange in the red, yellow, blue color system is orange. Orange is across from what color in our color wheel? That's a complementary. Blue, yeah, exactly. So it's A. Why is the term colorblind inappropriate to refer to most people with color deficient vision? Well, I suppose it could be considered an offensive term, but no, that's not why it's not used. Um, basically, can a person be colorblind without being completely blind to light? No, that's not true. B is absolutely not true. A person can be colorblind, but still see light. So basically, the answer for this one is C. Only a very small fraction of people actually cannot distinguish color, being truly colorblind. And that's because they are monochromats. Essentially, they see the world in black and white. And this is very, very rare. It does happen, but it is rare. And that's what true color blindness refers to. Most of us have some deficiency, like we either don't see, distinguish between red or green properly, or the blue and yellow. But we don't, in general, see in black and white. This one uh, I took directly from the lecture notes, and I hope that that would help a little bit. But this was the one I had done a couple times in lecture because I know it was a little bit, um, it wasn't as obvious. So in a something within a leaf, the more blah bond there are, the more red the leaf appears. Anybody remember what that was? So the answer in this case was E, carotenoid double. It's true that anthocyanins are red, but they don't need to be, if they're already red, they don't really need to be more red. Carotenoids are orange, and if you have a bunch of double bonds in those carotenoids, they become very red. So that was what I was looking for there. Okay. Which of the following substances is most likely to contain only single bonds? Well, we did talk about this a little bit in class, and one of the examples I gave were the diamonds, colored diamonds. So you know that, sorry, colored diamonds as containing double bonds. So this is asking you about single bonds. So since we talked about diamonds, you're going to choose a high-grade, expensive, colorless diamond. Because those single bonds correspond to a lack of color, whereas the double bonds correspond to more color. If you were thinking of choosing C, what I hoped that you would recall about the Hope Diamond is that it is blue. So it has a lot of double bonds in it. During the day, 
which photoreceptors provide us with light-dark contrast? So the key in this question is during the day. We talked about rods as being good with night vision and rods giving us light-dark contrast in general. But during the day, when there's enough light, cones take over. So the answer for that is A. So which of the following is not true about S-cones? S-cones, these are our blue cones, the short cones. And the one that is not true is E. They are the most numerous cones. They are, in fact, the least numerous cones, making up a little bit, only about 6% of the cones in our eyes. So it's it's E. It's not true. Uh, 20. How does the peak spectral sensitivity of the human eye compare with the peak emission range of the sun, of sunlight? Well, in this, uh, I had mentioned probably a couple times in lecture, and I had written it on the slides, that in terms of evolution, human beings have evolved to being on this planet, and they have basically evolved in conjunction with the sun to be sensitive to sunlight. So essentially, they see the same kind of dominant wavelengths that are emitted as the sun, and the sun emits in the yellow-green. So the answer for this is C. They are very similar, peaking in the yellow-green. Why is red-green color blindness? much more common in males than females. So I know probably, I think a lot of you chose E, that it's random. It's not random because it's definitely more common in males. And the reason that is, is because the color uh, distinguish, distinguishing ability is contained within the X chromosome for red and green. So what you have here is, I cannot actually quite read that. It's carried on the D. The genes for encoding proper color vision function are carried on the X chromosome. So females have an XX chromosome, so they are more likely to have the genes that allow you to see color correctly, whereas males have an XY chromosome, so they're half as likely to have the color that al allows you to see color correctly. Which of the following is not an example of synesthesia? Okay. First, we have to remember what synesthesia is, which is perceiving of color in non-traditional ways. So instead of seeing it, we might smell it, taste it, have memory associations with it. It's not a disorder, but it is something that some people experience. So in terms of this one, tasting chicken, touching a metal, yes, true. Seeing colors, yes, true. Developing a tan when skin is exposed to UV light. Well, this says absolutely nothing about perception. This is something that all human beings tend to do, a tan or a burn, when exposed to UV light. So the answer is C, developing a tan when exposed to UV light. That is not a function of synesthesia. What have we learned so far about the different causes of color? 
Okay, color is a subjective human, nah, because probably if it was a totally subjective human experience, impossible to explain, we wouldn't have this course. So hopefully not that one. Um, basically, we have learned that, okay, what have we learned so far? We have learned that there are 15 different causes of color. That was one of the first things that we said in lecture one. There's only 15 real causes of color, and we're going to learn about them in the course. So that was one. How many valence electrons does an atom of nitrogen with an atomic number of seven have? So first you want to remember valence electrons Valence electrons refer to electrons in the outermost shell of the atom. So when you have an atom, you have the nucleus and the different shells. And if you recall, each shell likes to be filled to a certain capacity. So the first shell can contain maximum two electrons to be stable, the next one eight, the next one eight or 18, and the next one 18, 32, and so forth. So when you're talking about valence electrons here of nitrogen, if you know the atomic number is seven, that means nitrogen has seven electrons. So if we go by the rules of filling up the shells, we've got the nucleus here, the first shell will contain two electrons, because that's the maximum that contain, it can, and then the next one will contain all that's left. So in other words, the next one will contain five electrons. And the next one will be the last one, since there are only seven electrons, so that is your valence shell, and the answer for that is five, A. In Newton's experimentum crucis, he showed that different colors of light are refracted through different angles when passed through a prism. The color of the light that is refracted or bent the most is always something which corresponds to a blah wavelength and a blah energy. So first, before you even tackle the second part of the question, think of the first part of the question. Remember that prism diagram? I had showed that all of the colors of the spectrum are reflected by slightly different amounts, which differ by about two degrees each. And we said that the one that's ref refracted most or bent the most is the highest energy one, meaning blue. So you know right away, okay, the one that's ref refracted the most is blue. So now you just have to figure out this second part, which corresponds to a something wavelength and a something energy. Well, blue Remember, it's very high energy, very short wavelength. So the answer is E. Sorry, the answer is, oh, actually, the answer is D. Because violet is even shorter than blue. The violet that we can see, that we can perceive, is just above blue in the visible range. So it's essentially, for this question, remember, we had the purple, we had, um, we had a violet in that spectrum, so violet would be the answer for this one, it's D. Violet, short wavelength, higher energy.
So throughout history, different organizational color systems were developed in an effort to, well, this one is just all of the above. All of those are reasons why we developed uh, color systems. The electronegativity of an atom can be thought of as it's something. So remembering we were doing electronegativity, it was a number that was pretty much ranged from like zero to about three. Electronegativity told us the bonding power of the atom, or how, how many bonds and how well it could bond with other atoms. So electronegativity is B, the bonding power. Sir Isaac Newton revolutionized our understanding of color by. So I think uh, several of you had questions on this one. If you see a general and a broad kind of sweeping statement like this, what I'm trying to get at is what was the most important thing that he did. He did lots of things. Um, but how did he change our understanding of color from what it was previous to him coming along? Okay, so the answer basically, well, he certainly did not either A or B. He didn't discover that we have three cones in our eyes. He didn't claim that light behaved like a wave. In fact, he claimed that it behaved like a particle. Um, claiming that light behaves like a particle, yes, he did claim this, but a lot of other people at the same time were claiming this. So this was not unique to him. Inventing calculus, he did that too. But that's not talking about color in this particular aspect. So the answer is C. Demonstrating that white light contains all prismatic colors. This was the revolutionary thing that he did. Because people before him thought prisms may actually create those colors. He proved that color itself is a property of light. And you can put in, insert a medium in the path of a light ray to spread out the light and split it into all of the colors that it's made of. So to us, we kind of say no big deal, but that was huge at the time. Okay, Thomas Young was the first person to suggest that, so first of all, try and remember who Thomas Young is. He's, he was a physicist and he basically talked about, because he's a physicist, he was interested in detection and detectors. He talked about detectors in the eye, and he said that the eye, he was one of the proponents of tricolor vision theory, uh, him and Hermann von Helmholtz. So Young said, see, the human eye has three basic color receptors. Okay. The definition of a metamer. So this one was on your assignment. So the definition of a metamer is color that looks the same to the eye, B, or, but has a different spectral composition. So it's one color that looks to us like a specific tone or, or shade or he, that looks to us like a specific hue that can be made in several different ways by combining different pairs of color.
There is something between the peak wavelength sensitivities of the cones in our eye and traditional wavelength values attributed to red, green, and blue. Okay. So with this one, we have to recall, I think it may have been lecture five, where I said there's three different color receptors, and these correspond to red, green, and blue in the eye, but they're not exactly red, green, and blue. And Thomas Young and Helmholtz figured this out. So the wavelengths that sh I showed you some sort of older diagrams that were originals from Young and from Helmholtz that showed you the three receptors and the peaks of the receptors. And it was kind of like this, and this, and that. So they were just slightly displaced from what we consider red, green, and blue, just slightly. So for convenience, we call them red, green, and blue, but the shades are a little more like um, yellowy green and, and different other shades. So the answer to that is a slight difference. There is a slight difference, C. That's right. That is true that sometimes, and, and, and also in the fovea, you really just have the red and green. So, but the answer with this one is because I said peak wavelength sensitivities. So it's really the sensitivity, not, not the localization in space of them. Right, right. So the, the question was about, is distance okay? Is, would D be okay? And D, it can be true that, that the red and greens are often, there's more of them, first of all, and they can be closer together and only in certain areas. But that talks about where they're located physically in space. Oh, you mean like varying distance from the peaks? Okay, I didn't even think of that. I didn't think of that interpretation at all. I, I just thought of varying distance in terms of... Okay, maybe we talk afterwards about that, because that, I see what you're saying. Okay. Uh, 32, photons behave like particles, waves, neither, both magnets. Well, both. We spend a lot of time talking about D. Photons behave like both particles and waves. Electromagnetic radiation, what is it? Well, we've talked about the EM spectrum. We've talked about waves of light. So it is E. It is the spreading of energy through space in the form of a wave that has both an electric and a magnetic component, which rapidly varies with time. So this is what the electromagnetic uh, radiation spectrum is, E. How does this EM spectrum then organize the different types of radiation within it? Okay. So how does it 
you remember we had that diagram and we have colors and remember colors correspond to different kinds of energies and different temperatures. How is the EM spectrum organized? We're talking about light and we know light travels at a constant speed c, so it cannot be speed since we're talking about the spectrum of light and the spectrum, the speed of light is consistent no matter what the wavelength is. Basically it's B. We organize the different types of EM radiation by their energies. And with their energies that also folds in wavelength and frequency because these are related to energy. Uh, you might wonder about color, because we said color was related, but remember, color is a physical perception that we assign to the visible area of the electromagnetic spectrum, that which we can see. So if you're talking about an x-ray or a radio wave, do we talk about them in terms of colors? No. So color would not be how the EM spectrum is classified strictly. What are energy orbitals in an atom? So we just drew them. They're the shells that electrons uh, basically orbit around. So basically there are B different tracks in which electrons can orbit around the nucleus, giving the atom a specific energy state. You have an electron at a shell, absorb a photon, it jumps the shell, changes the energy state internally. In an atom, absorption is the process where, now think back about that diagram, what's happening? Energy is being absorbed by an electron, meaning it's being absorbed and it, the electron jumps up a level. So it is A, an electron is boosted to a higher energy orbital by absorbing extra energy. It has nothing to do with protons or all incident radiation being absorbed, it's A. Light of different colors <coughs> Sorry. is created in an atom when what happens? Well, it's not when absorption occurs because that just causes the electron to absorb the photon and jump up a level. It's when electrons fall back down and emit a photon of a certain energy. So basically for this one, it's B. Electron jumped down to different lower energy orbitals emitting a photon of a specific wavelength and that specific wavelength is the color. What role do, I put the photons, I meant what role do photons play in atomic processes. Well, first of all, look at the first one. They stimulate the protons of the atom to grow in size. No, they don't, they don't do that at all. Um, they don't pass right through the, the atom either. Um, basically, their energy is exchanged with the atom. So they're not chemical. Remember, we don't talk about chemical bonds between photons. We talk about chemical bonds between atoms and molecules. Photons just change an energy state 
within an atom. So the temperature of an object refers to refers to basically whoops, what do I have here? The D, amount of motion of microscopic particles inside the object. Remember we talked about temperature and we showed those diagrams of the three states of matter, solid, liquid, gas. In the solid, all of the atoms were grouped close together, a little more spread out in the liquid, and very, very spread out in the gas. And they all vibrated with different energy. So temperature is a measurement of the vibrational energy and all the energy that are in the molecules that make up a substance. Absolute zero is a term referring to so this one, we talked about absolute zero. Uh, we talked about the Kelvin temperature scale, which incorporates absolute zero. So absolute zero goes with the previous question, with our definition of temperature. So if temperature is all of the motion that atoms in a substance have, absolute zero is the point where that motion almost stops and is minimized. So absolute zero is when motion in the atoms is almost ceased. And this corresponds to a number of things, um, and it corresponds to all of the above. Okay. The actual temperature of absolute zero in Celsius is minus 273.15 degrees Celsius. And I, I had sort of mentioned that. Uh, I could, yes, I had mentioned it and showed an example because we were converting different temperature from Celsius to Kelvin. Okay, so Kirchhoff's laws, Kirchhoff's laws, or Kirchhoff's laws, what did they do? We talked about them in the assignment, uh, and what, why were they important? They were important because they explained the three kind of spectra that we could observe. So A, they told us under what conditions and when you get an absorption spectrum, an emission spectrum, and a continuous spectrum. So that one is A. An incandescent light bulb, and remember incandescent is when you have two wires connected by a filament. The filament is heated and emits electrons. Sorry, emits photons because the electrons are heated. So what is it in a, is an incandescent light bulb? Is, let's see. So we're talking it's basically an example of, okay, let me see. Sorry, it's all of the above. Remember we had a diagram when we were talking about Kirchhoff's laws when we had the light source and it was a light bulb. So we were saying this was like a hot body. It's a black body. So it is a black body. It's not like a fluorescent because the wavelengths peak at different, so a fluorescent light has a peak sort of um, specific peak in blue, whereas incandescent light bulbs peak more in a yellowy orange area, and it glows. It glows because the filament's being heated and it emits photons. So it's all of the above, D. Subtractive color mixing theory. So what does it do with all of these? It actually is, does, again, it does all of the above. 
It does explain how light-absorbing substances, subtracting means taking away, how light-absorbing substances mix and create a final color. You can use it to predict the color of surface mixtures. And instead of having blue, green, and red as its primaries, it has cyan, magenta, and yellow as its primaries. So it's D, all of the above. Okay, 44 mixture. So something, something mixture theory applies to light only. Remember we talked about subtractive and additive and how one really is relevant to light, whereas the other is relevant to like print media and paints and surface materials. And that one that was applying to light was additive, additive mixture theory, B. A magenta light fixture, sorry, light filter. So that's a filter that will give you magenta if you shine a white light through it. Will block light with these wavelengths, this wavelength. So if you don't know where to start with that question, the first thing is think about magenta and think about which of our primary colors make up magenta. The last one. Which one? This one? Okay, so for this one, it was additive B. Yeah. So this 45 was actually from a slide where I showed you sort of like a light source that was composed of RGB, putting a filter in front of it, and what color it would give you on a screen. So we go back and we think about what makes magenta. Red and blue, exactly. So if it's going to see magenta, you know, it's going to allow magenta through, which means it'll allow red and blue through, and therefore it will not allow, it will block green. So it blocks light with C, green wavelengths. So diagrams like the CIE chromaticity diagram attempt to standardize color classification for purposes of well, they look pretty good when you look at them. All of them look pretty good, except for C. Because while temperature is roughly related to color, we cannot tell the temperature of an object simply by looking at its color. We can get an idea of relative hotness or coldness, but we don't know the actual temperature. So the CIE diagram doesn't tell temperatures. It is A and B. So it is essentially D. Dispersion of light. So we talked about dispersion of light. We talked about that with respect to Newton's experiment. So dispersion of light is what? What is it? Um, it is the process, A, of light separating or breaking up into its constituent wavelength components. Now, some of the others look true, but the one that's not true, B and C could be considered true. D is not true because basically with dispersion, traveling between any mediums of different densities will cause dispersion, not just a more dense medium. 
So which of the following statements correctly describes the refraction? Remember that's bending, the refraction of light. Okay. So with this one, we are talking about the path of a ray of light bending. Um, okay, let me just actually reread this. I'm sorry, I, I've totally forgot what the options were in this question. So a ray of light spreads after passing through an opening because of the wave nature of light. Well, that happens. A ray of light is partially absorbed as it enters a denser material. A light ray reverses its direction of travel after striking a mirror surface. No, that's reflection, not refraction. The path of a ray of light bends as the light enters or leaves a transparent medium of a different density. Yes, D. An E, a ray of light is intersected by another ray of light. Being intersected does not mean refraction. They're just intersected. That's actually interference, which we'll talk about next week. So the answer for that one is D. Okay, here's our red t-shirt that we are talking about today. So the three diagrams uh, below exhibit spectral curves. Diagram A is a reflectance spectrum. Diagram B is an absorbance spectrum. And diagram C is an intensity spectrum. So which of the, these three best describes a red t-shirt? Okay, so let's look at each of these three. So the first one is a reflectant spectrum. We talked about some of that again today. If a certain color of light is reflected and comes to your eye, you perceive whatever object is, is bouncing that light off of it as a certain color. So if you have a reflectant spectrum for a red t-shirt, it's red, it's going to reflect red light into your eye. Is that happening here? In this first one, is this, is this red? Okay, so it's at the lower end of the visible spectrum, so it is indeed red, because red is kind of pretty much at that 700 mark. So that looks pretty good. That's a reflectant spectrum. It'll be red. Let's look at B. B is an absorbance spectrum which means that it, wherever the peak is, it's absorbing all of that light. Therefore, we see the opposite colors or the, the remaining colors of light. So in an absorbance spectrum, we've got like a similar, the same peak. If you have an absorbance spectrum absorbing red, you are going to see blue and green. So no, it cannot be absorbing red. B is, is definitely wrong. Let's just check with C. So this is an intensity spectrum. Intensity spectra are like the ones you did on your assignment, saying where is the light most intense. And in this case, it gives you a peak somewhere around 450 or so, almost 500. So that means the light in this case is most intense in the green. That's not red. So the answer has to be A. A is reflectance spectrum, and it's reflecting red, and that comes straight to our eye.
what is the importance of, it should be the fovea. So what's the importance of the fovea? And if you remember about the fovea, I showed some images of sort of pixelated things, but the fovea is where you have the highest concentration of cones. And it's the thing that gives you vision acuity, so sharpness and high accuracy vision. So in this case, the answer here is that most of the cones, E, are located on the fovea, producing highest acuity vision. D is not true. The optic nerve is not attached to the fovea. The fovea is directly behind the lens. The optic nerve attaches a slightly lower on the side of the nose. Why do we have a blind spot in each eye? Explain it again? Sure. So with the fovea, it actually helps if I draw it. So here is your eye. So basically what's happening, in, this is your lens here. Light comes in and there's a basic axis of, of a visual axis that goes straight and then there's an offset. But what's happening is you've got your cornea, your iris, with the pupil in it, and there's your lens. The lens takes in the light, focuses the light onto the retina, which is coating the back of your eye. And the fovea is located kind of here. It's a part of a retina which has the most cone cells in high concentrations. And if you remember the, the dotted picture, there's a picture I showed you of concentration of cones within the fovea. So whereas cones out here are less densely packed, they're all packed very closely in there. So what you have, because, and think about it, this is because most of the light is coming in pretty much at this orientation. So in order for this light to come into you at this orientation, you have the highest number of cones there, which gives you the sharpest vision. So it gives you an area of really high acuity vision. In terms of those other answers, see how you would rule them out. So the rods detect light dark contrasts during night vision at the fovea. That's not true. There's actually no rods in the fovea. Um, the fovea is offset from the visual axis. That's true, but it's not important in this case. That is not the prime importance of the fovea. There's a blind spot at the fovea in each eye. Absolutely not true. It's the opposite. The fovea gives you the clearest vision. The blind spot is where the optic nerve connects to the eye and there are no rods and cones in that area. And again, optic nerve is attached. No, it's not. It's not attached through the fovea. So it is E. Okay, so why do we have a blind spot in each eye? So I just 
mentioned sort of why we do. And we have it in each, each eye, because remember we have an optic, the optic nerve comes up and then splits by the nose side to either side of the eye. Um, so essentially, there are no C, there are no rods and cones where the optic nerve attaches to the eye. Okay, so in this diagram, optic nerve attaches there and at this point where it's attaching there's no rods and cones and that constitutes the blind spot that we see is usually kind of somewhere back behind because of the positioning of the optic nerve. So the retina, what is the retina? The retina is, okay, so we're looking for something, we know it coats, basically coats the eye, it's the, um, one of the most important parts of the eye because it's where all the rods and cones are contained. So it is B, a thin layer containing photoreceptors and neural cells lining the inside of the eye. Now if you remember, we talked a lot about the retina we had a cross-sectional diagram of the retina showing that the retina in human beings is actually reversed than it is for most other animals. So we have that layer of nerves, uh, bi ganglion cells, and we have bipolar cells, and then we have the rods and cones. So that is, that is the retina. Which of the following is not true about rods? Okay, so which one is not true? Well, remember they have like light dark vision. So let's look at them. They're about 15 to 20 times more numerous than cones. That's true. They are more sensitive to light than the cones. That's true in the sense of there being more sensitive to brightness, darkness contrasts. They're the reason why you have night vision and why you can see in the dark. They can give a, sorry, wait one second. Okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. B, they are more sensitive to light than the cones. Well, they're sensitive to it, but the lights, the cones give you different, better vision of it. So the answer to that is actually B, because C, they cannot give you a high acuity image on the retina. D, several rods sum to return one signal of one photon to the brain. That's true. E, they are more evenly distributed throughout the retina than the cones. Well, that tends to be true as well. So B is the answer. Which of the following hypothetical individuals, so, so uh, basically don't exist, but which, which of the following hypothetical individuals would be truly color blind? Remember what we said true color blindness was? Seeing in black and white, seeing in monochrome. So a trichromat is a creature with three color sensors in the eye. A dichromat has two color sensors. Monochromat 
basically has one, which would be the rods, just showing you black and white. Tetrachromat has four or none of the above. C is the answer to this. A monochromat would see the world in black and white. What's the fundamental difference between a pure covalent and ionic bond of two atoms? The fundamental difference. And if you think of this, if it's such a broad question again like this, I'm probably asking one very specific thing, a fundamental difference, probably something that can be measured. And in this case, we are talking about the electronegativity values. So there was a scale that I showed you, which showed going from covalent bonds to ionic bonds, getting progressively more electronegative as the bond became more ionic. So the, the answer for this one is D, the difference in electronegativity values of the two atoms. What are the terms electronic, vibrational, and rotational referring to in the context of molecules? So if you remember, we talked about this for a couple lectures. When we were talking about energy states of molecules, different kinds of energy states. So B is the answer, the possible energy states in molecules. Which of the following displays of color is not due to an electronic interaction of a molecule? So the first thing you have to think of is maybe divorce the word electronic from what you may consider electronics in you know, your phones, your computers. It's true, these are electronics. But when we're talking about electronic as an energy state, we're talking about electrons and energy levels of electrons, gaining and losing electrons. So which of the following is caused by gaining and losing electrons? Sorry, which of the following is not due to either gaining or losing electrons? Well, one of the things we talked about was blue water. So we talked about blue water and blue water being a vibrational property of molecules. So that's Water being blue in large quantities is not due to electrons moving around. E. To color the same amount of white fabric with the least amount of pigment possible, the least amount, which of the following pigments would you choose? So if you recall back to six properties of pigments that we talked about, one of these properties was the tinting strength. Tells you how strong it is, how well it gives something color. So basically the higher the tinting strength, the less of it you need to use to get a really strong color, let's say on a white fabric, right? So with a really high, whatever the highest tinting strength is, you, you could use the least of it because it's really powerful. So in this case, the highest tinting strength here is 40. That's thalo blue or thalocyanine blue. And unsurprisingly, thalo blue is a synthetic inorganic dye, something that we've manufactured. So we've made it to be more powerful and give color easily and need less of it 
to do so. Okay. So 59, which of the following is not a fundamental property of a pigment? So we had six of those. Is there one in there that looks kind of strange? Well, the one that does look strange, if we're talking about a pigment, something that gives color to a substance, something that essentially determines what wavelengths are absorbed and what wavelengths are reflected to your eyes. Well, they're not making a substance glow. So one of the things, the properties that is not of a pigment is luminosity. Luminosity means glowing and emitting its own light. Pigments do not, unless you're talking about a real you know, glow-in-the-dark pigment, um, they really don't emit light. And even when you are talking about a glow-in-the-dark pigment, we don't talk about really luminosity. Okay, so the last one, we made it to the end. And um, I had thought that you were going to get uh, some color printouts. So again, I apologize for this. This was question 60, which showed you a scale of three sort of rows of color. So each particular row in this diagram is going to illustrate one of those three major properties of color. So from top to bottom, row one, row two, row three, what are we illustrating? Which of the three properties of color are we illustrating? Now, given that you saw this in black and white, there's still a way to do this. Typically, if you're looking at this in black and white, what you see is a whole bunch of different strange-looking light-dark shades. You see in this one something that starts off being almost white and ends up being almost black. And you see in this one a series of grays. So, which relates to which? It actually makes it, actually having it in black and white makes it a little easier to distinguish between the last two. So the first one, what's the first one? Hue, right, okay. The second one, and let's think about it for a second in black and white. The second one starts at white and goes to black. What do you think the second one is? Value, right. Remember we talked about value or brightness? We talked about how artists sort of decompose a color picture into a series of values between 0 and 10 corresponding to black and white. So going from white through the color to black, that's our value or our, our contrast. And finally, well, nothing is left. So for the last one, it's going to be saturation, right? And, and you can see that, so when you see it in black and white, again, this end of the uh, of the row is really light gray, and this end is darker gray, which y you can infer that you're, you're going from something with more color to less color. So the really saturated red there and the, and the gray, and that's what saturation is, how intense the hue is. So that was, that was about it. Does anybody have any questions? Oh, yes. The final will be multiple choice. 
And the final will be probably about the same amount of questions, probably about 60. Um, again, concentrating on the last part of the material from lectures 11 to uh, the end. Yes. Eight? Okay. Eight. These ones? Okay. Right, so the, the five is C, spectral, because we're talking about purples. Um, six is the oxochrome and chromophore, E. Seven is number C, so it's C. And eight, the pure covalent bond is the diatomic hydrogen and water, so that's C. Okay. okay. Um, yeah. So I think that's about it for this class. Have a good weekend, and I'll see you on Wednesday, where we'll pick up on part two of how light uh, enters objects.